0: Such marvelous words for us as we begin our meditation on God's Word, a reminder of how dependent we are upon the Lord to work in our lives. It's not something that we can just conjure up in our own strength. It's something we are completely dependent upon the Lord for, which is why we sing songs like that, an invitation for the Lord to uh, open our hearts and our ears to be able to receive God's word, and that will be important for us this morning, especially as we come to Joshua chapter seven. So, if you have a copy of God's word, I encourage you to re- open that this morning as we go to Joshua chapter seven. If you need a Bible, we got a couple of men who are going to be making their way to the back of the room here. You just throw your hand up in the air, and they will make sure they get a copy of you uh, to you, so that you can follow along with us this morning as we read together. Well, the passage that we're going to study this morning actually has a very significant uh, place in my own heart. Uh, Many of you have noted over the years my love for for preaching Old Testament narrative texts like what we've encountered here in the book of Joshua, Uh, and I will fully admit that that love has not always been there. In fact, like many uh, students of the Bible, uh, began my Uh, time studying the Bible with a lot of fear and trepidation with these narratives and often like many people walk away from them wondering what in the world I'm supposed to do with that information. Uh, That was until about 10 years ago as a young seminarian that I heard one of my new pastors and professors uh, teach from the text that actually sits before you here this morning and it was the first time in my life that I had seen an Old Testament story thousands of years old come to life, and see how the Word of God can bear so heavily on the human soul. Uh, but before you get too excited, I must warn you that Joshua 7 is not a text for the faint of heart. Uh, it is a passage that weighs heavily and convicts deeply. And so we're going to see that as we read some of the select sections from this morning, Uh, as we prepare our hearts to meditate on it together. So I would invite you now, if you have your place with Joshua 7, to go ahead and stand and honor the public reading of God's Word. And we're going to read from Joshua chapter 7, some select sections. We'll cover most of it together this morning. But I'm going to actually, for context, remind you of where we left off last week in Joshua chapter 6, verse 27, the very final verse of Joshua 6, as we lead into Joshua 7. So, Picking up in Joshua 6, 27. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Down in verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, "'Get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings.'" Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Verse 16 So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near the household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua, to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all the Israelites took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and daughters, and his oxen, and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that they had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today and all Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day then the lord turned from his burning anger therefore to this day the name of that place is called the valley of achor this is God's word for us to study together this morning, so you may be seated, and let's pray and ask for his favor now as we do that. And So, Father, yes, we do humbly come before you now with a, a text that weighs already very heavily on our hearts, a lot of questions, a lot of concerns, a lot of maybe even confusion, like in the situation of Joshua. And so we come just humbly yet boldly asking this morning that you would grant much mercy to us in our study, that you would open the eyes of our heart to see you in the glory and splendor and uh, to, to delight in you that the treasure that you are, and that, Lord, we would forsake the things that are peripheral, the things that seek to lead us astray and to hinder our relationship with you. So we come just humbly and boldly asking that today, knowing that you are merciful to do so. And we know that you will stir in your hearts, in the hearts of your people, uh, the appropriate response in accord with your word. So do that today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of us are idea uh, are familiar with the idea of momentum killers. Uh, Momentum killers are the things that uh, get in the way of things going really well. You have perhaps seen or experienced this in the sports world where a team is doing really well only to have one mistake be made and the entire trajectory of the game go the complete opposite direction. Perhaps you've experienced this playing board games with your children, right, Uh, If you don't believe me, you only have to play Candyland a couple of times to understand that momentum can be desperately ruined, even though you're a few spots away from King Candy's castle. You just draw one card, and all of a sudden, you're back to Nana Nut's house, right? (laughs) Complete momentum killer. Or students, perhaps you've seen this on a test before. You're doing really good on a particular section, only to get to a new section of the test and be completely stumped. And have all momentum completely ruined. What we have in Joshua 7 is a true momentum killer for the Israelites. We've been studying this book now for the last six, seven weeks. And so far, everything for the most part has gone extremely well. The people are trusting. They're believing. They have finally entered into the land. They've experienced their first great victory in Jericho, and things are going extremely well. In fact, so much so that we read at the end of chapter 6, right, that the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. That's, That's quite the summary statement, right? And yet, in the span of one single verse, everything goes south. Here we learn that a single individual was unfaithful that day at Jericho. Despite the gracious provision of God, one man found that it was not enough. He needed more. And what sits before us today and the point of this passage, I believe, is this. That your greatest enemy as a follower of God Is your own sinful heart. Your greatest enemy as a follower of God is not what you might think it is. It is not the things out there, but rather it is from within. And it is your own sinful heart. I believe that language is important considering the context of Joshua. Joshua is a book about conquest. It's about war between the Israelites and the Canaanites. And here we see that Israel's first defeat within the confines of the promised land was not due to the enemy forces. Sure, the enemy forces do beat them back, but that was not the reason for their defeat. Rather, the first enemy to bring them down was the sinful, greedy desire of the human heart. God had warned the Israelites of this before they even entered the land. He called them to walk in his ways, to consecrate their hearts We spent so much time talking about that because that's not just some fluff put at the beginning of this book. It is true to what God said. If you do these things, you will have great success. If you do not do them, you will experience great defeat, great failure. It's a harsh reminder to us that God's word is true in what it says. And even after thousands of years, the truth remains the same for us. Because the tendency of the human heart is for us to always believe that our greatest problem exists out there, out in the world. my, My real struggle is just the people in my life it's my spouse, it's my coworker, it's my boss, it's my classmate or it's my circumstances of where the Lord has put me in life, or my sufferings, or my trials, whatever it may be. But this text gets right to the heart of things and reminds us that the greatest enemy that exists does not exist out there. It exists here within ourselves. And so this morning, as we walk back through this story, I want us to see why we must take sin so seriously. I think this text exposes the the dangerous nature of sin in the life of a follower of God. And so I want to give you seven reasons why we as followers of God must take sin seriously. And let's begin there in verse 1 where we see this whole stage set where we see in verse 1 that sin betrays your loyalty to God. Look at that verse again with me, this momentum killer verse. Verse 1, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. You see there, in that very opening line, the people of Israel broke faith. To say that they broke faith? is to describe them as unfaithful. It's the same idea as unfaithfulness. The same language used elsewhere in the Bible to describe marital unfaithfulness, adultery. It is a graphic way to describe what sin looks like from God's perspective. It is a betrayal of allegiances, a breaking of a covenant commitment that you make to another person. Some of you in this room know the pain or know of others who have experienced the pain of an unfaithful marriage, the the breaking of trust that exists between those two parties, the loyalties that have been compromised because of sinful choices. On a foundational level, sin is a shot against the very one who has gone to such great lengths to redeem you like returning to the captor who once held you for ransom. The language used here is to help us see that sin is no small thing in the eyes of God. To say that we are on the the Lord's army and yet at the same time be doing the work of the enemy. It is a form of treason that betrays our loyalty to God. But secondly, I think we see here that sin affects more than just you. Sin affects more than just you. You might have caught on to this in verses 1 and verse 11, but there's a little bit of a conflict at play here, and it really stirs in our hearts because do you notice here that twice the Lord says, Israel has Sinned, And yet, do you notice, it only points out one person who made a mistake. Verse 1, for Achan took some of the devoted things. Achan did this, and yet we see here constantly the Lord saying, Israel, as a nation, as a people, has sinned. God does not distinguish between Achan's sin and the sin of the nation, but not only is his sin attributed to Israel, the whole army experiences the pain of that sin. Look at verses two through five for a moment. We didn't read this, but look why this is so serious here. Verse two: Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and he said to them, "Go up and spy out the land." And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as the cherubim and struck them there at the descent. And the hearts of the people of Israel melted and became as water. Here we see the the second city of the conquest. We've already seen Jericho at play. But now we have the second city that was on their radar, the city of Ai. And we learn from the context here that Ai was not a very significant city, very different from Jericho. Uh, It should have been, in our language, a cakewalk an easy victory but defeat did not come because of overconfidence or prayerlessness on their part because what we see here is that they do lose this battle uh, this should have been easy victory they lose And it's not because they were too quick to act. It wasn't because they were prayerless or presumptuous. We learn in verse 1, it is because the Lord was not with them. Because they had sinned and done falsely to what the Lord had said at Jericho. And the result is that they lose 36 men in this battle. Now, to those of you who know war history, the loss of 36 men is really in the grand scheme of things, not a huge loss. Battles have been lost that tens of thousands of lives have been lost. But how many lives were lost at Jericho? None. 36 times as many people died in this battle because of this one man's sin. And if that's not enough, the text tells us that they become a laughingstock to these people. And in verse 5, do you notice that it says that their hearts melted before the people of Ai. Now, does that language sound familiar to you? Because it's the exact same language described of the Canaanites in response to the Israelites earlier in the, in the book of Joshua. Suddenly, everything has changed. The role reversals are completely stark at this point. And 36 men lose their lives due to the sin of this one man. And notice Joshua and his concern. He expresses this in his prayer, verse 6. Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan, O Lord. What can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth and what will you do for your great name? Joshua is rightly confused. He's concerned. He doesn't have the information of verse 1 like we do. He's seeing this all unfold and it's He doesn't know what's happened. Lord, what are you doing here? And notice that central to his concern here is that God's glory is at stake. Lord, if they cut us off, if they they destroy us, then your name is attached to us. Your glory will be destroyed as a result of this. But here again, we see that the Lord is holding this nation responsible. That sin affects more than just one person. And I wonder if this section bothers you this morning. After all, we're Americans. We're, we're often individualists, right? We, we, we like our, our freedoms and our, our, our ability to do things ourselves. And so Achan's sin kind of rubs against our nature, doesn't it? And we're tempted to think to ourselves this morning as we read this, that's not fair. But I think this section is put here to remind us that sin is never merely personal. It is dangerous and it certainly has an impact on others around us. And we so often believe the lie that if it's, it, it's just my life, it doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't affect other people, it doesn't bother other people. And church, that is a lie from the pits of hell. And so, yes, God teaches a hard lesson this day, but it is necessary. Such disobedience could have a contaminating effect on other people. Think about how often in our culture we hear of uh, disease spread through contaminated vegetables. We think about E. E. coli breakouts, right? And the idea that you have to cut off the spread of that disease before it contaminates other people around. It's the truth that Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where he says a little bit of leaven affects the entire lump of dough. A little bit of sin among God's people can have a permeating effect. That's why we in the church must take sin seriously. We are called to help one another rather than tolerate sin's existence among us because it has both an impact on God's people as well as a corrupting perspective on the watching world. And that is important for us to consider because verse 10 and 11 reminds us of the third reason we must take sin seriously, and that is because sin robs God of his glory. Look at what God says in verse 11. He gives the reason for his anger. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I have commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. And that's important because we remember back in chapter 6, verse 19, he said these things in Jericho were holy. They were uh, devoted specifically to the Lord. And remember specifically uh, the spoil of it. These uh, valuables were meant to be uh, an expression of God's victory. They were to go into the treasury of the Lord. They belonged rightly to him for he is the one who gave the city into their hands. And so by taking these devoted things, Achan was not only coveting, but rewarding himself for the victory. After all, I deserve a little something, don't I? I've contributed something to this. Surely I deserve it. And so he stole for himself what rightly belonged to God This is one of the most common enemies of the human heart. We, by nature, are glory thieves, glory robbers. And here's how we have to understand that sin always in some way robs God of the glory that he deserves because it elevates ourselves and our ways and our preferences above what God has desired for us. And we think we deserve better. We think we know better than God. And not only that, it gives our affections, it gives our desires, it gives our lives, our time and attention to things other than God that belong rightfully to God himself. And here is where we forget that God does not share his glory with anyone or anything else. God does not play by the rules that we teach our kids when they're in preschool, that they need to share their toys with other people. Uh, We have a toddler in our home who's gotten into a little bit of trouble at daycare this past week because of the inability to share toys well with other people. God does not abide by those same rules. He does not share that glory and distribute it amongst others. There is great danger in robbing from God, and we see that further in verses 12 through 15 where we see that sin hinders your relationship with God. This is the fourth reason we must take it seriously because it hinders your relationship with God. And in verses 12 through 15, we see that God is actually quite gracious to reveal the cause of his wrath. Verse 12, Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies, They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. You see, God here is gracious to reveal the cause of his wrath, but he also reveals the coming consequences if they do not deal with it appropriately. Did you catch that in verse 12? I will be with you no more unless you deal with this. And that language and that phrase is so important. In fact, I think it's the emphasis of this very chapter here. Because you remember what has been the source of Joshua's confidence. What has been the confidence of the people of Israel this entire book so far? That the presence of God is with them. In fact, what does our benediction tell us, right? We should not be frightened, should not be dismayed for the Lord your God is what? with you wherever you go. And so that idea of the Lord being with you, being present with you, and especially for the people of Israel, the Lord's presence among them was the source of their victory. And so he's saying here, you can try to continue down this path. You can try to take the land by force, but I will not be with you. You will only suffer defeat. You see, sin It's like a roadblock that keeps you from moving forward as you should. That keeps you from moving forward in faith. It drives a wedge into that relationship you have with God. And perhaps you've seen this in your own life where you are maybe allowing yourself to do some things or think some things that you know you shouldn't. And simultaneously, you slowly start to see that relationship with the Lord slide and it feels more distant, and it feels more challenging, and it feels more difficult than it once did. That's how sin works. It drives that wedge, it hinders that relationship that the Lord has with you. But I think you also must see a gracious warning that God gives here in this, right? God is gracious to give these warnings in the scripture, We think about things like 1 Peter 3, 7 where God calls for husbands to live in an understanding way with their wives lest their prayers be hindered, right? That's God's grace telling you that, that your lifestyle and what you do can or cannot have an impact on your relationship with the Lord. Do not let sin have its way in your life. Take God's warning in verses 13 to 15 to deal with sin. He tells Joshua, prepare the hearts of the people, tell them the day of judgment is coming when I will reveal this. They are given one night to prepare themselves for this moment. In many ways, they are given a night to repent and to consecrate themselves and to come forward. And this leads us to verses 16 to 21 where we see that sin never remains a secret. We must take sin seriously because it never remains a secret. God is gracious to give the culprit an entire day to come forward, to confess, to to own up to his sin. And the next day we see that the lots are cast. And moment by moment, the scope of the perpetrator narrows. Did you see that in the text? Verse 16 Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. All of a sudden, it cuts it down to the tribe. He brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zerahites was taken and he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man and Zabdi was taken. You think to yourself, if you're aching every single time, the sweat begins to increase as the scope narrows. At the beginning, you may have been thinking, you know what? What are the chances? There's tens of thousands of men in this army. What are the chances that it's actually going to fall to me? Perhaps something will happen and a mistake will be made and I will get out of it. Maybe somebody else will be punished for my mistake again. And this is once again the foolishness and the, the selfishness of sin. That sin makes you stupid, right? To think that somehow you will escape the perception of God. And so the scope gets narrower and narrower. The sweat and the heartbeat increase until finally Achan and his sin are revealed. They are found out. Such interesting language every single time. The clan of the Zerahites was taken. The tribe of Judah was taken. Achan was taken, right? Achan took... And the Lord took and He exposed it. Church, be assured this morning that there is no such thing as a secret sin. Your sin will find you out. Time and truth always go hand in hand, and God will eventually bring it into the light. And like Achan, we are foolish to think that we can keep our sin concealed to think to ourselves, well, if no one else saw me, then certainly God didn't see me either. And we forget the truth of 2 Chronicles sixteen nine that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. The Lord sees it all. God is in the business of bringing sin into the light. Do not live with such a false mentality that somehow your Secret sin can remain in the dark. And this leads us to verses 20 and 21 where we see a sixth reason why we must take sin seriously and that is because sin fails to deliver lasting joy. Sin, sin fails. Verses 20 and 21, Achan is given a chance to explain himself. He's given a chance to confess. And for the first time in the story, Achan doesn't conceal anything. He doesn't hold anything back. He's actually brutally honest in his confession. I love verse 21. He said, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. I wonder, does his confession sound familiar to you? Have you heard or seen a confession very similar to this in scripture before? Because it reminds us actually of the very first sin in the Bible. It points us all the way back to the garden with Eve, right? She saw, she desired, she took, and then she tried to conceal. You see, that is the pattern of sin, but you notice that sin does not happen in the taking. It begins in the heart. It begins in the affections. It begins in the desiring. You see, it is not necessarily wrong that you live in a world that is full of sin and that you see something that itself may or may not be sinful. But the question is, what do you do next in that moment? When that ad pops up on your computer, do you run from it? Do you hide from it? Or do you entertain it? Do you think no one's watching? When you're driving through a a beautiful neighborhood and you see that beautiful home and you start to wonder, oh man, I really wish we could do things like that. And you start to think about all the flaws of what you have been given and you start to go down this dangerous path of all the things that have not been given to you in life. You see, for Achan, sin looked like it would promise big rewards, but it only led to his personal destruction. What he thought would actually satisfy him destroyed him. It lied to him. It over-promised and under-delivered. And so often we think that sin will satisfy our desires and bring us lasting joys, and yet... How often do we find ourselves seeing that it only leaves us lacking, feeling empty and guilty? I'm reminded of the story of Louis Zamperini, the featured character of the book Unbroken. His memoir is such a great story. But Louis Zamperini, as as an army vet, he spent 47 days adrift at sea in the ocean, a, a long time to go. And the real threat for him was how to survive with a, a lack of water. And he was faced with the decision of whether or not he would be able to drink the water from the ocean. You think about it, he's surrounded by water, right? But that's salt water. He had to live on rainwater whenever that rain would come because he knew that the rainwater was the only thing that would truly satisfy his thirst. If he drank of the salt water, what would happen? He would only become thirstier because salt water does not quench your thirst. It actually makes you thirstier. The very thing that could potentially be perceived as giving him life would actually be taking from him instead. Church, sin works in the exact same way. Do not be deceived by the lie of sin that says that it will satisfy when it only takes. It cannot deliver on its promise. And in seventh we must take sin seriously because sin will destroy those who do not repent. We see in verses 22 to 26 that we read earlier Achan, his family, his property all come to a devastating end. They are stoned, they are burned, they are stoned again. Uh, it's, it is a crazy ending to the story. And you may wonder why he's put to death even after he still confesses. And while we certainly see this confession, there is no evidence of repentance. Here's where we must remember that God is still glorified even in judgment. A day is coming indeed when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that includes both those who have repented and believed in him and those who did not. And God is still calling for the nation of Israel here to deal seriously with their sin problem lest God's presence be withdrawn from them permanently. This section of the story is a warning to those who are living in constant, unrepentant sin. If you allow sin to run your life, sin will ruin your life. Either now or later. And like Achan, you will find that you have no place among the people of God. Sin always shows where your loyalty is. And so a devastating end to this story. So the question then is, what do we need to take away from it? I'm going to leave you with four points to consider here this morning. The first is this, that sin occurs when God is not rightly treasured. What was the cause of Achan's downfall? Some could say that it was the temptations that came from outside of himself. It was his circumstances. It was the opportunity for him to gain greater wealth. But I would say that all of those only revealed the deficiency that already existed within his heart, which was this, he was not satisfied with God. Why are any of us tempted towards sin? Why is it that any of us go astray? Why do we run after lesser and petty things in this world? It is because we do not treasure God as we should. Somehow, Achan saw a a deficiency in God's provision. All he could see was what he wasn't getting, which is so crazy in light of what we read next week in chapter eight, verse two. Let me give you a taste of it for just a moment. Look at what he says in verse two of chapter eight. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Listen to this. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Do not think for a moment that you have a God who is greedy and does not provide. Achan in his pride and his ambition was so quick to want the here and now that he neglected to see the blessings that were on the horizon. The long-term provision of God's grace was going to grant to them something. And yet he was not willing to be patient with that. He wanted what he wanted and he took it then. That's why we sing of songs like Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus because we need to see and savor God now so that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim. But we don't only need to see God as our true treasure, we also need to see sin the way that God does. Notice that we are left at the end of this chapter with once again a pile of stones. Stones. Again, that's a theme in Joshua, these memorial stones. And these stones testify to both God's grace as well as God's judgment. In chapter 7, these stones are a lasting sign to the people and to us of how God sees sin. And I wonder if the ending of this story bothers you. We see that all of Aiken's family and his property are destroyed. We can maybe understand the family a little bit, even as hard as that is to grasp. Uh, you know, guys, you don't really get to move around furniture in your home and your wife and family, not ask a few questions about what's going on, right? At least that doesn't happen in my house. But we think about the animals, right? Like, they didn't, they didn't have any part in this. His tent? This tent doesn't have a personality or anything like that. Why are all these things destroyed? And that's because God's judgment is always associated with Israel in terms of the name, the lasting legacy of a family name. And so, yes, these animals may have had no part in this sin, but they were Achan's animal. The tent may have had no part in this, and yet it was Achan's tent. God is ridding Achan's name from history completely wiping it out as a complete curse upon them. God's wrath towards sin makes no sense if we do not see sin rightly. And so I ask you this morning, does sin bother you the way that it should? If not, then perhaps you, like Achan, have taken your eyes off the stones of chapter 4 and the goodness and grace of God. Perhaps you don't hate sin because you do not treasure God the way that you were designed to do. As Austin Duncan has put it, if God's wrath bothers you, it might be because sin doesn't bother you enough. And so see these stones in their appropriate light today as a reminder to look at sin and justice from God's perspective Third, walking in the light brings freedom. Walking in the light always brings freedom. We mentioned this earlier that sin drives a wedge between God and his people. To be clear, I am not talking about sin in the life of a a true follower of God. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, sin does not separate you from God. After all, nothing can separate you from the love of God as Christ Jesus. Nothing dissolves that relationship, but we have to think of it in the same way that, you know, a husband and a wife, if they have an argument with each other, does that make them not married anymore? Or if you have a conflict with your child, does that make that child no longer your child? Absolutely not. Nothing changes that relationship. But there is a strain that exists, right? There is a, a challenge now that exists between you and that other person In the same way, sin drives this wedge between you and your relationship with God and experience the the benefits and the grace of God the way that you should. And so what is the remedy for this strange relationship? Well, 1 John 1, which is on the cover of your worship folder this morning, reminds us to walk in the light. That when we confess our sins, we bring those into light The blood of Jesus that we have put our trust in, that cleanses us from sin. It cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The things that seek to drive that wedge there, God's grace removes those things so that we can walk in hope. John says that such actions bring freedom, allowing us to be restored. And We are reminded that through Christ we are forgiven and cleansed from any and all unrighteousness. And do you notice that this actually happens in community with others? It does not happen on an island. It happens with other people. We're not just walking in the light with God, but with one another. That's why Joshua and John both remind us of the importance of God's people. And then fourth and finally this morning, I want to leave you with this. That there is hope. And that hope for our sin is found in Christ alone. I want you to go back for a moment to the very last verse. A chapter seven. Notice what they called that place that day. It was called the Valley of Achor. And I know what you're wondering. Does that place ever appear again in the Bible? And the answer is yes, it does. If you were to go to Hosea chapter two, verse fifteen, you would see here that Hosea two is a, a context of spiritual adultery on the part of the people of Israel it's a a condemning judgment upon them for their unfaithfulness to the Lord, very similar to what we saw here in this passage. And yet, notice what he says in verse 15 of chapter two. I will make the valley of Achor a door of what? A door of hope. There's gonna come a future day where God's promise will turn that valley of trouble into a door of hope. How can God offer such hope? How is it possible for God to turn the trouble of people into hope? Well, unlike the Israelites, we know the rest of redemption story, don't we? I don't think it's a coincidence that both Joshua and Hosea and Jesus all share the same meaning in their name, which is the Lord is salvation. You see, the hope for every one of you today is that even though you have sinned and God would be just to punish you, your end does not have to be trouble. The hope for you today is found in the forgiveness that comes through Christ alone. And so I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We're going to end things a little bit differently this morning. A passage like this is, I think, an invitation to respond, and I don't know how we can walk away from a passage like this feeling indifferent. The invitation is what we just encouraged in these last two points. It is to walk in the light through confession and repentance, and it's a call for you to find hope in Christ Jesus alone. And so I'm going to invite you to to pray this morning and to pour your own heart out before the Lord to confess if there are any sins or or struggles or ways that you're not treasuring God the way that you should. Encourage you not to, to hide it because guess what? The Lord already knows it as we've seen here this morning. And So whatever the Lord is pressing upon your heart today in response to this, I would ask you to bring it to him now in prayer. I invite you to just sit there and and pray amongst yourselves. We'll have some music playing. And when we're done, we're going to sing. Appropriately so, we're going to sing of the glorious hope that we have all been given in Christ alone. So I invite you to pray now, silently to yourselves.